Welcome everyone to episode 51 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Sean Deeb. I was on Twitter yesterday browsing around and I saw that Sean was contemplating going on another podcast and I, I had to move quickly and poach him. So we, we organized this in short order. Um, every poker fan on this podcast will know who Sean is. Some of the non-poker fans might not know just how dominant he's been in the past decade. I was reviewing some stats from the World Series of Poker. In the past 10 years, uh, Sean Deeb is not only the number one player at the World Series of Poker, but he's the number one player by a staggering margin. If we uh, accumulate player of the year points from 2013 to 2022, Sean has 18,768 points and second place has 13,218 points. Second place is Daniel Nagano. Sean, how are we doing today? Good, man. You know, another day waking up with the kids, getting them out of the house and then focusing on poker. So that I'm glad you dropped the kids in straight away. Uh, how have you fit in this miraculous decade this dominant decade with fatherhood um my wife if it wasn't for her there was no shot of any of those results um you know she does a great job of keeping the kids busy all summer long when i go to you know vegas or World Series europe she knows that i'm away about half the year playing poker at different stops and she holds down the fort and when i come home she does her best to integrate me into her schedule and the kids system and, you know, we just kind of make it work every week. Now, your schedule has oriented around the World Series of Poker in Vegas. When did you decide to do that? I know some of the history and I know that there have been years where you haven't focused on tournaments. Um, when did you decide that summer at the World Series of Poker was your thing? Um, I... You know, from when I first turned 18 and started playing online, my first couple of weeks with the 2 plus 2 community, I got obsessed with the Poker Stars Tournament leaderboard, and I ended up winning it back-to-back -back years, the first two years I played full-time. And the, the first year I played half the year, I think I came in second place, and I came really close to winning. So I've always been very leaderboard-focused. I love putting in volume. I love grinding. I love putting in, uh, you know, playing every single day. I have no quit when it comes to that. I have amazing mental stamina uh, to play day in, day out and play all the games. So as my career progressed, I realized that I love the World Series. I love the events. I love mixed games. And I think that that lines up with my skill set because you talk to everyone during the World Series and they all talk about, oh, they got burnt out. Oh, they were exhausted. Oh, they just need to take a day off. They need a reset. You know, for me, I have pretty much no days off. Uh, I don't need any of that stuff. I know how to do my schedule. I have my, you know, things I like to do during the series to relax and make myself feel better, whether it's massage or, you know, just take a nap here or there. And I've gotten really, really good at optimizing my time to play the most possible events while still putting in great results and, you know, going deep constantly. Now, that same stamina uh, would serve you very well in cash if you just woke up every day and grinded cash, put in 80 hours a week. Yeah, unfortunately, um, 
I prefer playing mixed game cash and a lot of the biggest mixed games have gone private. Same thing with the no limit PLO games. And so a couple of years of my career, I used to play both tournaments in cash during the series. And I would be up for usually 48 hours at a time. I would sleep for four to eight hours, usually four hours, and then go back on it. But I was so run down. I was so physically exhausted. And my play was not as great as it could be. And so I just decided about six years ago to stop playing cash during the series, really focus on getting player of the year because a lot of my close friends had won it already, like uh, Frank Casello, Mike Gordinsky, you know, Ben Lamb, and everyone kept needling me about me not winning it. So, and they're like, you play so much, you're so much better than us. Why have you not done this? Um, so I really focused on it and I decided to quit cash games during the world series because it's just too hard to do both. Um, yes, I'm giving up a little bit in hourly, but you know, for someone like me who only gets to play a few months of the year, I don't want to deal with the variance of playing some massive Bobby's room game when I'm going to have to go home and be with my wife and kids for, you know, one to three months and have no very low source of income. So for me to have those big downswings that can happen in big cash games, I think would affect my family life too much. If I have a losing year going home and just sulking and realizing how many hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars I lost and not be able to recoup that in any, you know, short time frame. Totally makes sense. Now, when you talk about volume and grinding, I'm not sure all of my listeners understand what you mean. Uh, listeners understand that the World Series of Poker is the focal point of the poker calendar, but many people would think about it as one tournament a day, something along these lines. Uh, tell them what your schedule looks like. Uh, so for me, I wake up. Whatever is the first event, usually the 11 a.m. start, I will hop in that event. I, if it's multiple bullets, I will try to get in for max bullets and increase variance because of the way the player of the year formula is set. Uh, min caches are kind of useful, but the second and third tier min cache is really what we need to strive for, which is usually about top 3% of the field size. So I'm really aiming for that amount. And also, I know if I get knocked out of that tournament, I then go hop in to buy into whatever the 3 p.m. or the 1 p.m. This year, there was three different uh, starting times. So I will constantly be hopping in event to event. I'm also one of the few willing to multi-table. So that means I'll be playing two or three World Series events at the same time and running between the tables and blinding out somewhere. Obviously, that's long-term minus EV, but I think I offset that a little bit by playing my stack size in each table and each tournament in a way that I am preventing myself from getting too short. I'm preventing myself from losing too much equity by blinding out. And I have a good uh, understanding of which tournament of the two I should be playing at which point. Like, uh, you know, sometimes you're on the bubble of one tournament, you know, it's hand for hand. You're only getting one hand every five to 10 minutes. So I'm actually, even though I'm profitable on the bubble, I'm going to go run to the other tournament and play for 30 minutes and have someone text me when the bubble bursts and then go back to that other tournament. And so during this time, I'll also usually be playing the online bracelet events as well while playing live. You know, there's a good clip this year of me. I was uh, in the money of three different World Series events at, at the same time, the flip and go, the 3K six max and whatever the online bracelet was for that day. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I had an amazing feat, which I think will never be topped. I made uh, two consecutive day threes of tournaments 
while multi-tabling the whole way. I got third in the 1500 no limit single draw while getting 11th in a 1500 no limit hold'em. So I had a chance to win two bracelets on the same day while playing the tournaments the whole time. Uh, that was crazy. I don't think that'll ever happen again. And I really was hoping to win at least one of them just because of the fact that I, you know, I did some crazy things in both tournaments, got extremely lucky multiple times, but obviously I played really well and I just love the grind. I love meeting new people at the world series and I look forward every single day of the two months to, you know, hop in whatever events going. Wow. So most people, their, their brain would explode if they tried to replicate your schedule. Uh, I think their body would hurt more than their brain. Um, I think that most online poker players are used to multi-table and used to multitasking and playing long hours. I mean, playing two tables live is not a big deal. One table live is just for me, it's like a relaxation. I am not stressed almost ever during the world series. If I had 20, 40 tables going online, like I used to do, you know, some mixed games, some cash games, tournaments, final tables, whatever, that was way more stressful than the world series grind for me. We have to give some credit to Daniel because uh, old man, Daniel, he's almost keeping up with you. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing player. He's adjusted so much to what the new kids are doing. He spent so much time studying the game with coaches and he's, you know, very impressive. Uh, there aren't many people like him left in poker. So take us behind the scenes to the fantasy draft. And just to give listeners some background on this, uh, just, just as football fans assemble their fantasy football team and wager money on it, the diehard poker players assemble teams of poker players that then accumulate fantasy points over the course of the World Series, and they bet on it. The baseline betting is 25K per team, but then the side bets have occasionally ventured into the millions of dollars. So, I, I mean, this is a completely unseen world. Could you, could you give some people background on the fantasy draft? Yeah, I think uh, the fantasy draft is the one thing that I hope the World Series picks up and actually starts advertising. Yes, it's probably – I don't think it's illegal because there's no VIG, but I – you know, so Daniel Negrano organized the draft. It was originally started by Howard Lederer with the old full tilt crew and the system they came was you draft a team of eight players. You have a salary cap of $200 uh, and there's just an auction and players are nominated and everyone bids up and you have to fill out your team of eight. You have, you don't have to spend your whole $200 points. And then there's a whole scoring system based on the results of tournaments. Uh, there's a couple things I dislike with the scoring system for fantasy. It has a few things that benefits too much. But I know that it's extremely difficult. There's always going to be some style of tournament or some player that is kind of ignored for the 25K fantasy while other players are too valuable. And now with the new World Series schedule, there were so many high roller, no limit, hold limit, PLO tournaments with multi, multiple re-entries that the value of the high stakes, no limit, PLO players probably surpassed the value of the mixed game players and for the first five years I was involved in the draft about a decade ago, all that mattered were people who played the 10K mixed games. 
the no limit and PLO tournaments were too small. The fields were too big and too unlikely to get significant scores to justify drafting a player. So that has been a great battle for everyone. We all love it. It's something to look forward to. And then there was no kebab to it. Uh, a couple of years ago, David Baker started the ODB fantasy. So with the built-in salary caps, like the DFS guys know, from the original 25K draft, youth and can pick your own team of eight within the salary cap of $200 from every team and every player that's been drafted. So I think that, you know, ended up this year getting seven or 800 entrants. I throw like 10 teams into it. I think it's a blast. Uh, I was talking to Nate Silver during the world series and he said he uh, drafted a few teams. He wants to get involved in the 25 K fantasy draft, do some statistic, uh, whatever, um, do some analysis on, the previous results and what players are truly worth. And I'm hoping to get him involved because I love math and I love numbers and getting someone as gifted as him to be involved in, you know, our draft, I think would be great for us. And it would, what you really need is a a team of analysts, right? You need Nate to lead the uh, statistical analysis and you need someone else who's like your scout who tells you, okay, this guy is going to play every event. He's motivated. He has a bunch of side bets and he's cleared his schedule this summer. Uh, this person, no one knows, but he's a really talented player who just quit his job and he's going to be grinding every event. And this player, everyone thinks he's going to be a star this summer, but actually his wife is making him go on vacation for five weeks or something like you need that. You need that scout information, right? Yeah, uh, that's very important to draft. I'm one of the lazier drafters, and I usually tend to just draft my friends. Um, but I think a lot of people, like, you know, years ago before I was known for going so much in volume, you would get a text from every single person drafting a team. Hey, what's your schedule look like? Are you selling action? You know, are you going to be around? Are you playing cash? And they would ask you, like, 10 questions, and it got really annoying. So I try not to do that to players because I hated that. And I would love, I love it when like, uh, you know, I think Chris Vich and some other people will say, Hey, I don't want to get a lot of text. They'll put out a tweet saying I'm playing this schedule. I'm selling action. These events, this is what my draft value should be. And that, I think that's a great way to do it. And, you know, Daniel Negreanu has had come up with some ideas because every year, especially with COVID and stuff, there's been a couple people drafted or just playing zero events. So for those guys who kind of get screwed, by drafting a, a perennial guy who always is doing stuff, uh, there's my oh, – sorry, but, um, They always get drafted, and then they're, all of a sudden they're not playing, and that team is at a huge disadvantage because you have a team of eight. If you have one guy sitting out, you're really in trouble. Now, um, with the big side bets that happen, you can have the team captain maybe uh, back a player on his team to get – more points like a player who maybe is running low on money. Does that kind of thing happen as well? Yeah, uh, that was huge. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was like a Russian contingent who always drafted a team and they would make the <laughs> biggest side bets with every team. And they would basically give anyone they drafted free rolls for any <laughs> event. Oh, you don't know how to play no single draw here. You got 25% free roll buy into the 10 K. Like they were super crazy. And I think it was very nice to what they were doing, but they love to gamble. Um, and then also when it comes to the side bets, like I know Negrano does this and it's really smart. The people he drafts on his team, he offers them a cut of his side bets. 
So Daniel always drafts one of the strongest teams. He basically, you know, to relate to DFS, he drafts a cash game team. He wants a high floor. He doesn't care much about ceiling because he's going to side bet the whole field. And if he comes in the top 25%, he's going to make money because the side bets are a lot larger than the 25K draft usually. So he then offers a piece of his side action to all the players on his team to incentivize them to play more. And they have a group thread and like, hey, if you need to sell action, we might buy it. You know, there's all that going on. And the same thing with my team this year, you know, Dan Wyman, who came second in player of the year, one of my best friends, he was playing a couple events and I helped him sell for some extra stuff because our team was close and I took a bunch of action. I mean, I would take it anyway. I, I, you know, usually you're drafting winning players. So it's a great scenario if you end up being able to buy their action as well on top of having them as a fantasy sweat, but you see so much go on and so much action and so much more motivation for volume out of your players. And then occasionally there's a kid who gets drafted who no one ever heard of. And they're, they got this chip on the show. Like I'm going to prove to you guys why I should have been drafted and why I should always be drafted because to up and coming, you know, players, that's kind of a sign of you made it if you get drafted. So this past year, Daniel, he was the uh, highest value player in the draft by $1, right? And you were the second, the second highest? Draft. Yeah, so Daniel went for 110 of the 200. I went for 109. Um, me and him both think that that's too high for our respective selves. Yes, we are the most valuable people to draft. Um, but I think that the way the draft is structured, that – those points you can get so much better value in the 30 to 40 point range of getting three or four guys who play a full schedule, play all the big stuff, play this, play that, that I think that personally, uh, and obviously Nate would be the one to solve this. I think you shouldn't in, in that amount of field size, but there's been a lot of discussions. If, if this was a 25 person draft or a 12 person draft, how much you should vary on the top guys. If it was a 25 person draft, I think you should spend a ton on myself and Daniel because your second half of your team, when you start getting to the 200 and 300 person drafted, they're going to be so much weaker in EV of points earned that you need those top tier guys to kind of anchor your team and then hopefully hit a flyer or two in the later rounds. Just so I'm sure I understand it. Um, Daniel, he's, betting on the team that he picks his side team, which doesn't necessarily include him. He never drafts himself. Um, okay. He treats it as a pure head. She says, if I have a good world series and I make a lot of fantasy points, I don't care that my fantasy team loses. And so that's, so he will never, he, he will never bid for himself. He will never draft himself. Um, he always has his team and it never includes himself. And I, I think I've never drafted myself because there's a weird dynamic when it comes to bidding on yourself that other teams tend to run up the score. So if you know that someone wants themselves, they're going to pay a higher premium than if it was someone else bidding on them. So very rarely should the person buy themselves in a draft. Got it. And when you mentioned the changes that have happened at the World Series, the number of events have gone up each year especially when one considers the, the online events that have been added. And then the buy-ins have increased. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a full summer schedule might run 350,000 or something. And now 
a full summer schedule of the type that Daniel is playing is over one and a half million dollars. Is that correct? Like the buy-in has yeah. gotten very large and they, it used to be no rebuy and now it's rebuy. Yeah. So, so many additional high rollers, all the high rollers have re-entry. So I think even 10 years ago, the max you could spend probably was like 200, 250 K excluding the 50 K players championship. There was only so many 10 Ks. There weren't a lot of five Ks and you know, there's one event most days. There wasn't two or three a day. So they've really expanded the schedule to take care of, you know, the whole spectrum of poker players. You have $400 tournaments now and you have $250,000 tournaments. I mean, that's a spread that is unbelievable. If you told me 10 years ago, the world series would have buy-ins that low and that high, I would have thought poker was in trouble, but it's the opposite. Poker's doing so well because they offer to everyone different stakes, different opportunity, different experiences. And it's extremely difficult from a back end side to run such huge field events and to run such small field high rollers. But World Series has an amazing staff. Uh, the new properties are awesome. They really fit into the growth. And there's a lot of room for expansion over the next couple of years. Now, digging into the uh, fantasy draft a bit more, you've had some odd years in your history. You've had some years where clearly the field did not expect you to play. And then uh, you scored massive points. 2017, for example, your salary was $4, whereas it's obvious that every year that you've uh, looked like you were playing a big schedule, you've been either the the top dollar draft or the second highest. So what happened in 2017? Well, that was right when I stopped playing cash. Um, like 2014, 2015, I was big in a thing called open face Chinese poker. The games were massive. Uh, I played that instead of tournaments almost always. And it was around those years, you know, once I had a family and I said, you know, what's my legacy in poker? What am I really going to be known for? And I said, you know what, it's time to win a lot of bracelets. It's time to show people how good I am at all the games. And I was undrafted in 2016 and I played a lot just out of spite. And then I was shocked how low I went for 2017. And I think in 17, I had a good shot for player of the year. I was like top five going to Europe and unfortunately didn't have any results there. But, uh, you know, I finally got that taste of being in the player of the year hunt and that just set off a switch in my brain that says, this is what I enjoy. This is what I want to be known for. This is what I want to strive for. And ever since 2017, I've tried to bring so much attention to the World Series Player of the Year race because I think that that is truly more impressive than the current amount of bracelets. Because the fact you say the schedule's expanded, there's 90 some odd events. There's probably 150 outside of Vegas during the World Series between online, World Series Europe, you know, Michigan, you know, European, I don't know. There's just so many different bracelets to win now per year. That player of the year is the one thing only one person can win. And it truly means that that person ha had great results over a lot of volume, which I think shows more skill than someone winning one off bracelet here or there. Yeah, of course. I would have to agree with that. Now, what exactly is the action you have during the course of the summer? Uh, there are four ways to get action. You have your the player of the year race. You can bet on those point totals. You have the uh, 
fantasy poker, where, as we've said, high amounts are bet. You have bracelet side bets where you bet if you will get a bracelet or get two bracelets or whatever. And you have sometimes cross booking where say if the tournament is quite small and you're, you're playing a thousand dollar tournament or a $400 tournament, you might cross book with someone else of a similar skill level. Who's also playing that tournament so that the effective stakes are higher. What, what does your uh, wagering look like over the course of a normal summer? Uh, I wish I could do all those things more that you mentioned. Uh, unfortunately, people are so afraid of me and probably rightfully so with player of the year that they want obscene odds to bet head to head. Um, you know, this year, 2022, my biggest player of the year bet was actually against myself. Um, I bet on the field versus myself and Daniel Negreanu must win player of the year. And I laid three to one and thankfully I won that bet, uh, but I would have been okay losing it. Uh, but yeah, so I can't get down as much side bets or cross books as I want. I had one small cross book this year and I won a little bit on it. I had uh, someone else, you know, Bank of Timex me, sold me extra action at markup for some of the mixed events because they thought a particular player couldn't win at a win rate. And I'm very confident of where I think my win rate is. And especially, so I basically booked myself in a couple events, but it was a small percentage. It was like 10% of each event. So I haven't really, I don't get to do as much side bets because there's a lot of fear and, if I want to bet, I'm always going to take the worst of it because people are real hard negotiators with me. They just try to stroke the ego, try to, you know, get me to bet too hard on myself. But I think I'm very strong at being self-aware of what true odds are. And I'm not willing to take the worst of it. And these people want usually two to three X where I would be willing to bet at is the odds they're trying to get. Well, if you have Nate as your as your analyst, I feel sure that he will try to drill in on on some of your estimates, uh, and he will probably also weight kind of Bank of Timex estimates. Although I know Bank of Timex is now defunct, but um, the kind of question he might ask is if you could buy your action at the next for the next five years for all of the 10K mixed events. And let's just say you were looking at the unbiased estimate, so the zero EV estimate, and you would sort of buy if you got a good deal relative to this zero EV estimate. Um, what would your estimate be? And just so, just so listeners understand, in the 10K event, the best players like Sean would think that their entry is worth more than 10K. Um, but for the average person in the field, their 10 K is immediately worth only 9,400 or 9,300 upon sign up because of the rake. So the average markup in the field should be sort of 0.93. I don't, I don't remember. Is the rake six or 7% on these 10 Ks? Uh, I don't know exactly. Um, it's one of the, I, it's, it's, so I think it's higher than that now, uh, when you include like the staff fee as well. Okay, let's call it 7%. So on average, the markup should be 0.93. Um, what, uh, what do you think your markup is? In terms uh, so I think your question is a little too general. I think five years is too long of a time frame. And also all the 10Ks, 
there's too many of them. Like, are you including the 10K main event? No limit hold them. Are you including the 10K just PLO? The mix. Just, just the mix ones. Just the limit mix ones? Yeah. Okay. Um, I would think I'm probably around 1.4. Uh, there's some that I'm as high as 1.7, 1.8. Other ones I'm as low as 1.1. I mean, there's, I think, close to 15 10K mixed events now, including all your bullets. Um, so it's a lot of events. It's a lot of games I'm very good at. But also you play against, you know, it's 100 to 150 person fields, and you're playing against 85% professional poker players. But I think that there are a few people with my background, because <clears throat> I come up, playing tournaments for so many years online and I've played so many years in mixed cash, my tournament ICM in mixed games, what I think and what I know and what I guesstimate, I think no one else is even close to. And so I think that I probably have one of the highest ROI, if not the highest in overall in all the events, obviously there's specialists who are great at 08 or great at, you know, single draw or great at study who are going to beat me in that event. But I would bet on myself versus anyone in the whole 10K, you know, fields. If we did a total cumulative bet. That's that's very interesting that you think a lot of the earn comes from ICM considerations. Which games would you say give you the 1.7 or or 1.8 markup? Would that be like the dealer's choice and the eight game? No, uh, actually the 10... 10K horse and 10K 08 uh, because they get the biggest field, the highest percentage of wrecks, and also the 10K limit hold'em, which is a shocker to a lot of people. So few people have played nine-handed limit hold'em that in so many years that everyone plays really, really badly. And the ICM considerations, the limit hold'em, because you get so shallow so quickly that knowing spots to raise first in and steal and knowing what to defend out of the big blind. I watched so many great Linda Holden players over defend at those stages of the tournament. And so if you think about tournament results, all the money's in top three. And when you realize that how you play day one usually doesn't affect your equity too much. It's day two, day three, day four. That really is where the money in EV is found. And that's why I think ICM is so important because understanding your stack depth and saying, I have seven big bets. I can play two hands out to showdown. I can't raise this streak because if he three bets, I then commit too much of my stack. There's so much stack preservation in limit games that the 90% of the field are cash game professionals. There are very few tournament pros who play mixed games and play them well. Uh, most of them just kind of feel it out. And a few of them have the background of starting in tournaments like me, but almost no one has put in the volume that I have in both tournaments and mixed game cash. So in in uh, No Limit, you have programs out there like ICMizer and other programs that can sort of uh, give you situational ICM analysis. But in mixed games, nothing really is out there, right? So it, are these just things that you've built up over time where you've analyzed particular situations and come to an answer and then you're able to apply, apply it to new scenarios. Yeah. I mean, I'm the, one of the furthest things from the solver guys. Um, everyone assumes that I'm from that generation, but I was before that and I am not great. I don't use solvers. I don't practice them, but I'm smart enough to talk to people who use them and understand the concepts they're talking about and figuring out ways to incorporate there are some of their calculations into games that I know. So when they say like, 
in Nolan Hold'em to defend the big blind, you need to have this equity to continue. You can transfer that to mixed games and say, oh, this makes sense. Oh, I know how close, say, deuce to seven, triple draw. The equities run really close almost always in those hands. So if the equities always run close and you know you need an X number of edge to defend on ICM, you should actually be folding a ton and only be stealing and raising with initiative, playing against the blinds, then playing out of your small blind too many hands because the equity there is never going to be strong enough to justify being out of position in a coin flip scenario with ICM considerations. Which game gives you the lowest edge? You mentioned 1.1 as being on the low end. Um, probably the 10K dealer's choice. I think uh, that really is the toughest event of the year. The dead money goes out really fast. People are really tough at calling games. And, you you know, I final table that a couple times. I got heads up with Adam one year during his three-year run. And that can be so brutal, the situations and the tables of death of that event, that I just think that the edges are much smaller in that event than people think. Yes, there's an advantage to be able to call all games, but majority of the people are pretty confident in all games. And when you get down, like we talk about the edge being day two and day three, you're playing against all these Bobby room killers, all these, you know, guys who are just great at all games. So the edges, when you get deep in that tournament are very, very little. Makes sense. Now you said that you've developed routines to relax and make yourself feel better during, during this summer. Uh, You mentioned massage. What are some of the other elements? Where do you stay? Uh, what do you like to eat? What are you doing off time? So I've, the last three years now, I've stayed on property. And I think that that is by far the most efficient use of my time. And I've noticed a big uptick in results based on that. So now I have my room. If I bust the early event, I go to my room, I take a nap. I get a dinner break. I can go upstairs and I have, uh, you know, I got bought a fridge. I bought a freezer, bought a microwave. So I like, I had a bunch of grab and go snacks. Uh, my room was right near one of the tournament halls. So even on 20 minute breaks, I'd go in the room and relax. Uh, so I, I think I'm very good at getting as much of my time to be in an environment where it's not too busy. I'm not standing up, you know, I have, whatever snacks or drinks I want that I prefer and I can, you know, play as much poker as I want without driving to and from not commuting parking. I think I get way more sleep being situated on property. And that's been a big thing. And I think I talked to a few people last year and some of the high volume guys also stayed on property and they're like, wow, this is so much easier. Like everyone hated staying at the Rio, but Bally's in Paris are a little bit nicer. They're a little bit more convenient. The rooms are closer. My room was pretty spacious um, and it was very comfortable. And, you know, I had a couple people had keys to my room. We come hang out on break and you get that social side where it's not just pure isolation, but you're talking through hands. You know, your other friends are going deep in events. You're sweating everyone along, keep a track of updates. And I think the more success you surround yourself, the more it motivates you to keep putting in the volume, keep registering every day, regardless of results, you just, keep showing up and that's what i do best do you do the massage in the spa in the room what what's no the- I, I have um there's a place called good tie spa and this girl patty 
who a couple of people found her last year. So I'm finally publicly announcing that she's the best. So I love Thai massage. You get a good stretch. Uh, you know, I get two hours uh, once or twice a week from her whenever I can fit it in. And she's awesome. The best masseuse I've ever had. And uh, yeah, it really helps. And I used to get a lot of chair massage and it's just not as useful compared to that. So I'd rather spend two hours going there and miss a little bit of a tournament and register a little bit later than go and get chair massage where it's really not getting the blood flow and really, you know, making a difference for the next day. Football fans, join the next generation of fantasy football with Rainmakers Football, the first ever NFT fantasy game from DraftKings. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFL Players Association. You can play all season for millions in prizes by building the ultimate NFT franchise. Playing Rainmakers is simple. Buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long. You'll be competing for almost 30 million in prizes. Download the DraftKings Fantasy app and sign up with the promo code ADAMS. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first card free. You will then be playing for millions in prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT franchise. That's promo code ADAMS, build, play, and win only at DraftKings. So I want to travel back in time a little bit. You started playing poker at Turning Stone in New York. Explain to me the concept of an 18 plus casino. I've never heard of this in my life. So, yeah, so Turning Stone is on an Indian reservation. Uh, and so it's 18 plus to play poker. I'm surprised you're not familiar with that because some of the South Florida casinos, the poker rooms are 18 plus. I didn't Did you not know realize that. that? Uh, yeah. yeah. Hard Rock for I many was... years was 18 plus that you could play poker, but 21 plus to gamble in the casino. Yeah, I had no idea. I assumed everything was was 21 plus. So, so what years were were these uh sort of formative poker years i imagine this corresponded with the two plus two years and you probably were with a lot of two plus two legends back at this time yeah i mean you know being it's turning stones right outside of syracuse so we had a bunch of canadians come down there you know timex would come down when he was younger chrissy b was a, a local from day one you know lucky chewy andrew lichtenberger um, and there was just so many great two plus two people, Jimmy Fricky, uh, Clayton Newman, a lot of successful people went there early on and turning stone did a good job of advertising on two plus two. So we got a huge contingency of the young poker crowd. And those are, you know, a lot of the first people I met when I first went to turning stone, uh, I met a couple of people and I had never even played a tournament yet at that point in my career. I had just turned 18. I was playing you know, limit hold'em on party poker, and I met a bunch of people from the MTT community uh, on two plus two, and I started talking to them, hanging out with them, playing a couple tournaments. I liked it. I liked the volume and the more tables, and I just kept firing up table after table, and uh, it was a huge part of my career. Was those guys really curtailed my crazy style and taught me a couple things and. What they taught me, I was able to use as an exploit for like the first five years of my online career. So I imagine that your online career was pretty smooth. 
up until Black Friday. Maybe you can take us through these years. I'm going on my personal memories of you being a bit of a terror back then. Um, what what was the trajectory like from these Turning Stone years to 2011? And then we'll we'll venture into the uh, post Black Friday Mexico years. So yeah, so online poker was I had amazing success from day one. I turned a $30 deposit from winning a game of Monopoly into like 30,000 the first week, ran up to 100k a couple weeks later and I had a couple times I came close to going broke online, but I just always won a tournament that day I needed to and I just ran so good at all my high equity spots. I think there were so many big final tables that I made and I just won almost all of them. Obviously my style fit that the way I played final table bubbles, the way I played shorthanded. I was the volume guy when online poker first started for tournaments. No one played more tables than me. No one played more hours than me. So no one had the experience that I had. And I would just play, you know, 40, 50 games at a time. And when it got down to the final table, I'd be three tabling. And I was so hyper-focused and knew everyone's tendencies. I had a great memory. Um, I had amazing timing tells on so many people and I just understood ways to win pots without having equity. That was something I didn't understand at the time, but I was really good at denying equity of my opponents, whether it was just making reshoves or overshoves or just betting and C betting a ton. I just won so many pots without showdown that I was able to accumulate a massive chip lead. And then as most people know, now once you have that massive chip lead, so many more profitable spots come. And all of a sudden, you just win the tournament without really ever being at risk to, you know, lose your chip lead. So what years, um, what, what years were your, your best years online? I kind of remember it as being sort of late, late in the day, kind of 2009, 10, 11, not during the poker boom, as it were. Uh, is that, is that a correct recollection? Um, not really. Um, obviously I got more known as time went on, but I had a lot of success early on, but also that success was not in tournaments like someone like you would notice there was only a Sunday million and a, you know, a nightly, there weren't one case back then. So I played super low stakes, but I was crushing and would win most days and win a lot of money week to week. And then as time went on, when the buy-in started increasing and, you know, there was more high rollers and more events and everything guaranteed was bigger, obviously that brings more notoriety and more headlines, but uh, consistently dollar to dollar, I was very balanced throughout my years, actually. And you've said before that your learning style is experiential rather than pen and paper or solvers now um this experience began playing at the table with your grandmother when you were a small child could you take us through some of that history yeah so uh i come from a family that loves gambling my grandmother and grandfather played cards their whole life uh my grand you know played until she was 95 years old she's the oldest woman to ever play the world series main event at 93 years old um and so I always learned from trial and error and mimicking people I thought were better than me. When I got into mixed games, I said, who do I think is the best at this table at study? Okay, that was CG. Who do I think is the best at res? Okay, that was this guy. 
Who do I think was the best at triple draw? Okay, it was Yen Chen. So I would just watch every hand they played of that particular game and go to the replayer and look at their whole cards and try to reverse engineer what they were doing and why and what positions they were playing and versus what people and what frequency they were raising and then try to incorporate that into my game. So my goal at that point in my career was to be the second best in every game of a mixed game. And so once you get to that, if you're playing an eight-game rotation and you're second out of six in eight games, you're going to make a lot of money. And so as time went on, I slowly you know, pushed myself from second to first in some of the games of the mix. And I did the same thing in old tournaments. I did everything by trial and error. I would experiment. I would try shit. I would see someone win a tournament and do something and say, huh, why do you do that? Okay, let me try to incorporate that. Oh, you know, like something, for example, was Pearl Jammer was one of the early min raisers online. And we all thought he was terrible. He was min raised folding off super shallow stacks. But when I thought about it, I was like, hmm, everyone thinks you're strong doing that. Oh, this is going to work X percentage of the time. It doesn't matter that people think it's bad. If it's profitable, I'm going to incorporate that into my game. And I did a lot of that throughout my career to these little nitpicking, little strategies and little moves and, you know, getting my frequencies tuned a little bit better. And that really helped, you know, get this exponential growth of my skill set where all of a sudden I was one of the best players without working the same way that everyone else was working. Better than reverse engineering would be getting teaching from the best, but I assume that it's impossible to get teaching from the best. They don't want to give away their secrets. So you've, you've decided that it's best to try to work out their strategies through hand histories. Yeah. I mean, back then teaching the early coaching sites, you also didn't know who the best was. We, we all knew about results oriented thinking and you were never sure who was actually doing the best. The best player could have ran so far below EV and could have gotten out of poker. So there wasn't enough knowledge back then to definitively say who's the best. There were a whole bunch of profitable strategies and, but everyone who was making money doing that, it was never worth it to be a coach. You were better off just clicking register on events than coaching someone. It was never worth their hourly to spend time coaching you. And it wasn't worth yours either. It's because back then everyone was profitable. That was at a particular skill level. So there was no issue of the games being too tough. So there was no incentive to hire a coach to increase your edge because I think the edge, you, the amount you increase it is going to be so minute. All those hours spent studying, if you just played those events those days, you would have offset that uh, equity very quickly. So 2011, uh, things are in a smooth spot and then Black Friday happens. What is your life like at the end of 2011? So when Black Friday happened, I was living in Vegas and Panorama Towers. I was sitting there playing online mixed games all night. Um, and all of a sudden, people stopped being able to join the table. And so I stayed on the table and played a couple extra days. So I was one of the last Americans to be playing on uh, Poker Stars. But uh, and then, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I switched to playing live mixed games for a couple months. There was a great game at Aria run by JRB. And I got a lot of experience and really started focusing on live mixed games. And then about a year later, um, John Aguiar, JC Alvarado, Aaron B and a few other friends had all moved down to Playa del Carmen, Mexico. And they've been trying to convince me to move there even before Black Friday when they were thinking about going there. 
So I ended up going down there and meeting a great community of poker players, inviting some of my buddies down there as well. And, you know, we lived it up for a couple of years and had a great time there. Now, uh, this was, you said, 2012 when you moved down there? Yeah. Late 2011? So when did you when did you move away from Mexico? Um, right when I started dating my now wife, uh, I had a lease down there and I started hanging out with her. We were living in Jacksonville, Florida. Then we moved to Fort Lauderdale and then we decided to, you know, get married. She got pregnant and we moved up to New York and then pretty much my Mexico career was over. So, so like 2013. How, how, 2013. Or 2004. Yeah, 13 or 14. I I think I did one trip when me and Ashley were dating. I went down there for a month or two to play like scoop or W coop. Now in a poker listings interview, you said that uh, those were kind of crazy years and that you had uh, more volatility than you'd had at that point uh, up until that point. And there were some, some moments in time that were kind of dicey. Can you take us, can you take us through those moments? Yeah. I mean, I was partying way too much. Uh, I was, the games had gotten a lot tougher, you know, once the shared liquidity started evaporating there, uh, you know, difficulty in mixed games didn't run as much online. There was the no limit tournaments were smaller fields, tougher fields. And I, you know, the game was passing me by and I wasn't recognizing that. And I wasn't focusing on what they were doing. I was just, in my own, you know, doing my old strategies. Uh, I think I was still smoking some smoking weed back then. And I think one of the issues when you play and smoke weed is you get very robotic. And I was not thinking critically. I was not thinking analytically. I was just, oh, this worked forever. It's never going to end. And it took time for me to realize that when I went away from the tables, oh, wow, I'm losing right now. Oh, these guys are better than me. And, you know, the last five, 10 years of my career, I've recognized that online no limit holding tournaments, I can't beat. I'm just not good enough to beat the, the stakes I want to play and the tournaments I want to play. The top guys are too good. The fish are even better than me. And I'm going to be one of the biggest donors of their community. So I choose to not play those because I know that it's just a bad decision for me. You mentioned earlier that in 2000. 13, you started focusing on open-faced Chinese poker. You obviously have a lot of faith in your ability to learn new games faster than other people. Explain, explain how this happened. Explain how open-faced Chinese poker popped up and explain the opportunity. So uh, I think I was first exposed to Chinese poker when I was at like EPT San Remo or something. Everyone started playing a lot. Oh, no, sorry. I was exposed to it first by uh, Brandon Cantu. Uh, we, he had played it somewhere in France. He taught me the game. He beat me out of like 10 or 20,000 the first night. But I knew that this game was really cool. It was going to be really popular because close face Chinese was always a popular game with the high stakes guys. But I knew that was pretty solvable. The edges were real small and the swings weren't very big. But as open face became popular, uh, I noticed it had a hint of this could be the next big thing. And then I went to San Remo and I learned about what's called fantasy land was this version of the game where you get all your cards at once. If you make Queens are better up top and I, and it clicked in my head and I said, 
this is the next big thing. I knew that I had to get to the forefront of this game. It's very math combination intensive. And I used to do math competitions as a kid. I love math. It's why I love part of the reason I love poker so much. So I knew it was right up my skill set. There was a lot of creative things I could do. And putting in the most volume of open face Chinese, I would be better than everyone else before the solvers came. So I played all the apps. I played as many games I could find. I played anyone I could, any stakes. And I did really well for a couple of years doing that. But unfortunately, like a lot of my career, I, my ego and my bragging and my loud personality, I told everyone I was the best at open face because I don't try to hustle people. I'm straightforward. And I got shot out of a lot of really good games because people knew me as the best open face player without ever playing with me. So that's one of the things in my career I look back on. I wish I wasn't so braggadocious in some scenarios or didn't do every interview request to try to teach people a game. It's like people like, oh, I learned open face watching this tutorial with Bear Greenson and Sean Deep. Sean's really good at this game. So I got myself shut out or people wouldn't want to play me because I cared more about bringing it to the masses than making the most money myself. And I think that was a mistake throughout my career. I vaguely recall also that there was a cheating scandal within the open face community. There's been more than one. I mean, all gambling, there's going to be cheating. And there was uh, a bunch of Russians found an exploit in one of the apps that was popular and they played everyone, won a lot of money. They beat me out of a lot of money. Um, you know, they're two of the people who played me and beat me are the only two people can claim that I owe them money. I paid uh, one of them, most of the money I lost, the other one I paid a very small percentage, but I was very confident I got cheated. And for me to be willing to stiff people, especially some, you know, less desirable people, that obviously I'm very confident that it was not a fair game and I was drawn dead. So I chose not to pay some amount of it. I didn't I didn't know that that part of the story in depth, but your your reputation is very strong. So I'm sure that the uh, the community has largely agreed with the decision. I mean, there's you know, the old school gamblers disagree with some of my mentalities when it comes to outing people for debts or trying to collect debts or whatever else. Um, I think the younger generation has done a better job of protecting the community from at large. That's part of the reason why I enjoy being the markup police because I'm tired of watching people get hustled. I think that there's ways you can tell people like a casino, you're going to lose and let them gamble. And that's their choice. But when you tell people, Oh, I have this great system to win. That's just fraud. And I'm anti-fraud and anti, you know, that side of gambling. And that's one of the things I really care about in this community is protecting investors and protecting people who want to gamble to at least know if they're, what they're doing, have an idea of what their equity actually is. If you tell, if I tell you, uh, you know, there's a situation where I sold action to a tournament and I didn't want to sell it. And these guys were begging for it. And I said, I will give you a price to buy at where you are losing money. But if you want to buy my action, this is the premium you're going to pay because I don't want to sell to you and you're hounding me. So I'm going to charge you 1.25 markup for a van. I think I'm winning 10% on. And that's like, I am blunt and straightforward when it comes to that. And I wish more people in the community accepted that way and also felt that way because plenty of people are willing to pay a premium to gamble. There's a reason why people play lottery. People why place, you know, different table games, in the casino, as long as you're upfront and say, this is a losing buy, 
But if you still want to do it, that's fine. That's great. I think that that's where our community should go towards is complete brutal honesty and let people choose their threshold of gambling. And yes, everything on these edges and ROIs are guesstimations. No one fucking knows the true answer, but really just be honest. And that's one of my pet peeves and one of the things that I care about a lot in the gambling community. And hopefully, I think more and more people over the years have come to that agreement of my thoughts. And I love every time at the series or anywhere, someone says, hey, I appreciate what you do for the community, whether it's calling out cheaters, calling out people for bad debt, or calling out people for bad markup. I have realized that I could do more good for the community in that way than any other way. And that's you know what I embrace at this point in my career. So it's brutal brutal honesty as the framework, right? You have 40,000 Twitter followers. Your Twitter feed is absolutely brutal. And sometimes, honestly, I don't even know when you're joking or not. And I've known <laughs> for 15 years. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, even I don't know sometimes when I send a tweet, if I mean it or if I don't. Uh, I changed my mind. I, I know that a lot of things I say because of my poor writing skills, the true intention of what I mean by it is often missed. And sometimes it ends up being a better joke or delivery because of the failures of the English language that I, you know, represent. But yeah, so I don't even know every time. Obviously I have a couple people I quarrel with and a couple people I get in these little Twitter battles with. And I'm sometimes I'm shocked that they're offended. I assume like always assume I'm trolling if I'm like really making fun of you and if I'm really being personal, but assume that I'm telling the truth and being honest when I'm talking about, you know, money things and, you know, equity and, you know, protecting the community. So a needle is something that you very much enjoy. So a, a needle for listeners is uh, in poker, sort of epitomized by the slow roll. And you you do like the good slow roll every once in a while. Could you explain this? Uh, so, yeah. So one of the first things as TV poker, I started getting on it. I was known for slow rolling. I had always done this online. It was part of the online community. We thought it was hilarious. Um, and I started bringing it to the live element. And I did it to some old school guys who didn't find it as enjoyable and really think slow rolling is the worst thing can ever happen to people in poker. But that's been one of my other things I've tried to bring in the game is bringing the fun back in poker and slow rolls are fun. You think of almost every fish you play poker with at high stakes, they love a good slow roll and they love to slow roll people. They love the pain on someone's face. I don't do it for the pain. I do it for the pure psychological torture. I mean, we're at a poker table to get in people's heads. And when you slow roll someone, and then they're always afraid of that slow roll. They're going to make mistakes on some hands because they don't want to call on a spot because they're so fucking afraid of getting slow roll. So there's a lot of fun with it. I think I've come up with some creative slow rolls throughout the years. I incorporate slow rolls in every aspect of my life. My wife slow rolls me all the time. I slow roll her. You know, there's it, slow rolls don't just happen to, have to happen at the poker table. They could be all parts of your life. And I think that, you know, lightening up the mood a little bit, having some fun, and making the situation a little more relaxed is good for everyone long-term. So you're there in your office with the gaming chair, the gaming headset in upstate New York, but 
you can't play poker most likely. How frustrating is this? Well, unfortunately, I mean, there are ways to play. Obviously I still play different sites, different private games, different clubs. Um, but obviously being shut out of so many games, it's brutal. It's one of the faults of being a known successful player and people hear my tournament success and they think that means that I'm one of the best cash game players. I'm not, I've never been when it comes to Nolan or PLO um, I'm a degenerate at heart and I'm not a solver guy and I'm a lot of action. So I think that a lot of these people running private games made a mistake shutting me out. Yes, I'm going to win, but also the people who lose to me are going to have a time and a better enjoyment and they're happier to lose their money to me than someone else who's going to sit there and not be sociable, be no fun, lock up the win, hit and run, do all these things that I fucking hate in poker. And so I have some exposure to games, not the stakes I would want to normally play, not the frequency or the tables I would want to play. But I mean, the poker COVID was great for poker. There was another boom in all these private clubs, all these app games, all this other stuff. There's always going to be games to play. It just, you have to fade security of these clubs, payment, you know, easily get cheated. There's all the stuff that you have to worry about. So there's extra stress week to week that I don't enjoy, but it's necessary to earn for my family and keep myself busy because if I didn't play poker in a week, I would go fucking nuts. You know, I, I love playing the game and a different switch is turned on my body whenever I'm playing cards that I need to get that fix regularly or else it's going to be bad for everything else in my life. Well, poker was so healthy this summer at the world series that I couldn't help but wonder if the lack of online poker in the U S has sort of kept bankrolls robust and it, it sort of stores up the appetite for the summer when everyone goes crazy. If there were online poker in the U S there wouldn't be that kind of bankroll availability. It would have all been raked out. Uh, I think a lot of the fish would have definitely struggled against top online guys. I mean, online has to worry about so many different cheating aspects with RTA and bots and different things that are just going to siphon out money out of the community. Um, but I think that, you know, there was a big gap in live tours or so everyone was super pumped when live poker came back, but COVID, a lot of people came back to poker who had left, who went to real jobs or lost their job or need something to do while sitting at home. So they joined a, a home game with a couple of their buddies on one of the app games, or, you know, they got together and that was their weekly home game. I think that, Poker is such an American tradition, such an international tradition at this point, that it's always going to have cycles where there seems like things are so great. It's like, you know, the bull market of poker. And that's kind of COVID caused that. But I think that you're seeing so many venues and sites operate so well that people are getting such a good experience that they're going to want to come back and keep spending their, you know, extra income on poker because it's addicting as hell getting those good results, seeing those big first place prize pools, playing against big name players. There's such a camaraderie and experience of playing poker that I don't think there's any other activity where you can incorporate that many people to have that good of a time. For sure. It's been nicknamed uh, summer camp for degenerates and it is a lot of fun. I have to say, well, this has been, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Brent.